let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, we're moving right along here through our, our projected uh, project of coming through each book of the Bible, kind of giving you a, an understanding or uh, kind of a, a viewpoint of the Word of God that you can put it all together and get enough of the framework that you can really begin to see how the Bible lays itself out. And last week we studied and outlined the little book of Ruth, and you saw how that uh, in the midst of Israel's sin and apostasy, which is the book of Judges, we find a little, uh, a little book that shows you how to build a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? I need to point these things out to you as we see them. I've told you many, many times how that um, every New Testament principle, everything that's laid out in the New Testament, you'll find a story or a picture of it in the Old Testament that illustrates it. Now, the, why, the reason why God does this is so God can, because God knows that the way we learn things is by illustration. And you remember something a lot more when you see it happen than you do just about reading it happen. And, of course, when you come through uh, the New Testament, you find principles that are in place for your life and my life that Paul writes to the church. Those principles are very exact principles, and, of course, they... They really set the course of our lives, and we can, you know, really follow those principles right down the line. But you're going to find that in the Old Testament that God has given you examples of that. And those examples are stories that illustrate those principles. Now, the book of Ruth, remember, uh, we talked about how that it was written during the time of the book of Judges. And uh, here in the book of Judges, we see the nation of Israel going into apostasy in a great way. It's a time where it shows the depravity of man and the collapse of man when he rejects the Bible and the Word of God. And uh, yet, in the middle of that, you find uh, a little book, Ruth, that shows you and I that we can build a working relationship with the Lord in the midst of that apostasy. Now, if there's any story that illustrates the great truth taught in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, it's the book of Ruth. And you need to be able to mark these in time and see them. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 is probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible that show you that in the midst of the Laodicean church period that, as I've said many, many times, you can build the right kind of relationship with God. For it says in that passage, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any men hear my voice and open unto me, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. That verse clearly shows you that in the midst of apostasy, you can have a relationship with God. That's what the book of Ruth illustrates. And you're going to find that every book in the Bible will have a storyline. And many times those books of the Bible will break down as individual storylines to show you great New Testament principles. We don't have time to lay them all out as we come through, but certainly I want to be able to point out some of them to you and show you how you find them. So once you learn the process that you can, you know, you can find, uh, find them for yourself. But today we're going to look at the book of 1 Samuel. And I want to take a few moments and I want to uh, kind of put everything in perspective. You know, one of the problems when you start laying out the Bible is you get so many lines going. You've got so many things running through here that you've got to all kind of keep, uh, keep in uh, perspective. So every once in a while, you know, we'll stop and for a moment and we'll come back and put things in the proper order so you can, so you can figure where you're at and keep the consistency going. The Bible, as you already know, is a great historical book. Not only does it take care of your spiritual problems, not only does it show you what God is doing or the theme of the Bible, the second coming of Christ, but it also shows you accurately down through history exactly what God is doing. 
And that's the line we want to really protect here as we come through. One of my goals is for you to be able to, when we're finished, look at the Bible and see every book, how it fits into the line of historical accuracy. So we've come to a major point now, 1 Samuel. We saw in Genesis where we have the creation and God goes through a series of, of, of men after he calls out Abraham, and he brings out men, and of course, at the end of the book of Genesis, they're down in Egypt. And we see God taking them down in Egypt for 400 and some years, so he can establish them as a strong nation through the affliction and all the persecution that goes on. So the book of Genesis shows us how God calls out a people unto himself. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all books that we've looked at, they all cover the same 40-year period. Each of them deal with a different aspect of the nation of Israel, but nevertheless, they all deal with them coming out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, and then the events that take place for the next 40 years as they wander because of their unbelief. And then we come into the book of Joshua. In Joshua, we see them coming to the point where they cross over Jordan. And they, we see the conquest of the land, and then in the last part of the book, we see the colonization of the land where the nation of Israel actually gets physically into the land and begins to claim what God gave to Abraham back there in Genesis chapter 15. Even though they're a long way from where God wants them to be, they're now in the land. And then we see a process begin to happen here that, and I've talked about many, many times, every time God does something in the Bible, the devil is going to do something to counteract that. So we see the book of Judges. God puts them in the land, and in the book of Judges, we see them going into apostasy. And we see them departing from God, doing their own thing, and of course, uh, we saw the book of Judges. There's no need to go back through that. And then within that time frame of the book of Judges, we have the book of Ruth, which shows you that in the midst of apostasy, you can build a relationship with God. Now we come to 1 Samuel, and really we enter into a series of books. And those books are 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. Now commonly... Uh, They're all called, all those books are in many places you'll find, especially some of the older books. Some of the older books written at the end of the Philadelphian church age or in in a part of the Philadelphian church age, they'll call these books the four books of the kings. And sometimes people are confused because it says 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, and then you'll find a reference to, uh, you know, the four books of the kings, and you'll wonder where where it's talking about. And of course, in the old days, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings were recognized for what they are, even though their, their, their name's different. They all represent the same period of time, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Now, 1st Samuel, one of the things you've got to remember about this book is that it is a transitional book. It, and there's, there's, there's a few key transitional books in the Bible that you have to mark as such. When you see them, you know you're at, a, you're at a crossroads in the Bible where God is changing direction. And that certainly is the book of 1 Samuel. Because the book of 1 Samuel transitions you from the time of the judges up to the kings of Israel. It's where God now takes the kingdom and establishes it under a monarchy. God's purest form of government is a theocracy. And that is the, that is the government that will be in place during the millennium and into eternity. And a theocracy is when God is on the throne and God is king. But in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we begin to see the beginning of that theocracy by, a monoc- by what they call a monarchy. And a monarchy is a literal king. We don't have a monarchy uh, in America. 
but we have anarchy. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have a monarchy in America. England has a monarchy. They have a king and they have a queen. We have a democratic form of government that is, does not have a king or have or a queen. The nation of Israel was set up in its beginning after a monarchy. That monarchy was the, was the trial period for God to establish the nation of Israel by an earthly human line of kings that in time the greatest king the world has ever seen, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come from that kingly line and make this world into theocracy. That was what God was establishing to do. 1 Samuel is the first book that introduces that line of monarchy. And uh, you're going to find that Samuel is commonly called the 13th judge. There's some people that argue that Eli was and he is. It, it doesn't make any difference. It's a transitional book that brings you through. We don't want to get hung up on things like that. But what we begin to see in the book of 1 Samuel <clears throat> is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. You remember now that in Genesis chapter 15, God took Abraham out, showed him the stars of heaven, and said unto him, Abraham, someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And we see that at that point, God has given to him the kingdom of heaven, the literal visible kingdom on this earth. And from that point, everything that transpires is bringing us to this point where God can give them a monarchy, which in time God can give them the theocracy that God wants to have. Now these books start with Samuel, they move to Saul, and they move to David. I'm talking about the four kings book now. We, in 1 Kings, we're going to see three men that are, that are characterized. We're going to see Samuel, Saul, and David. The two main characters being Samuel and Saul. David comes on in the middle of the book and, and, and rises to power here at the end of the book. But basically the book is built around those two guys, as we'll see here in just a moment. And the book starts with Samuel. It runs through Saul. It then runs through David. Then it runs through Solomon. And we find with Solomon, the nation of Israel gets to the highest point in this monarchy that it ever gets. Solomon, here again, I keep telling you over and over again, that when God moves to do something, the devil moves to counter it. When Solomon comes to the throne, the Bible says that he's got all the wisdom of God, he's got everything that God wants him to have, but the devil does his work, and the Bible says very clearly and plainly that, uh, that Solomon's heart is turned from God, and he goes after other gods, and at that we begin to see the demise of the nation of Israel. After Solomon, the kingdom gets split uh, with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And of course, from that point on, we follow through all the way through uh, to the book of 2 Kings chapter 25. And by the time you go through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, at the end of 2 Kings in chapter 25, you find the end of the kingdom of heaven on this earth and the, the destruction of the nation of Israel under Shennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar. So we find that those four books really give us that picture. And that picture covers the time of the kings. And uh, we'll uh, follow that through and, uh, and see it. That's the historical layout. I wanted to bring you up into speed as far as that's concerned. Uh, and then you can have that in mind as we look at some of the great principles. Let's go to the Lord this morning and ask Him to bless us now as we uh, look into His Word and try to find the great principles that will really impact our lives. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We love You, 
And Lord, we ask you this morning, Lord, that you open our hearts, show us and give us wisdom and insight into everything that's said and done today. We'll give you the honor and glory. We thank you for those that are here today. May the word of God be true in our lives and impact us, Lord, and teach us and mold us and make us into your image. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Hey, Danny, she lost something there when she went out there, that little white thing there, whatever that may be. All right, now, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a number of great truths and great principles for us to look at. And one of the things that we see is an, is an underlying theme in the whole Bible. And that is, and you find it in every book of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And you're going to find, again, that Israel's success or their failure is based on their obedience and their attitude toward the Word of God. Now, there's a reason why men don't like the Bible today. And men don't like the Bible today, and I'm not talking about just unsaved people. I'm talking about saved people. People don't like the Bible today because the Bible is a negative book. There's nothing positive in the Bible. You say, well, salvation is, po- is positive. Yeah, but salvation is, pos- is positive only after you look at the negative and you've got to see yourself as a sinner. In other words, there's nothing positive in the Bible about man. The Bible, everybody, the reason why we hate the Bible and feel like we've got to change the Bible today is because the Bible is such a negative book and we want to live in such a positive society. In our society, we don't like differences. In our society, we don't like things that are not right, and right in our own eyes. And that's why we always put a positive spin on everything. That's why you're going to hear all the words that they use to describe our society will all be in a positive mode, affirmative action, you see, things that, uh, uh, that, that always give a, a positive. But the truth of the matter is that the Bible is the most negative book the world has ever seen because the Bible shows you man's true condition. And the reason why men don't like the Bible is because they don't like to look at the way they really are. One of the things about every one of us, and it doesn't matter if you're saved or you're not saved, you have to really, the reason why you have to work at loving the Bible, because the Bible in its basic form is totally contrary to where you and our nature is. You don't like to be told how rotten you are. I don't like to be told how rotten I am. We like positive things. And I'm not saying you need to be told how rotten you are all the time. But you need to accept how rotten you are all the time so that when somebody tells you how nice you are that you really know they're lying to you because they want something from you and you're really not that way. That's the truth of life. That's the reality of life. And you need to understand that the reason why men hate the Bible is because the Bible paints the true picture of man. It paints the true picture of us. And you've got to get past that before you can accept the Bible and love the Bible. The Bible says, talking about the Word of God in the book of Proverbs, he that loveth a honeycomb, honeycomb is the Word of God. He says, he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things become sweet. And that tells me that for you to love the book, you've got to get over some things, and you've got to get over and accept the fact that you and I are not where God wants us to be, and very rarely are we ever. And our whole lives is built on trying to be everything that God wants us to be, and of course, that's why God gave us the Bible. Now, that's why in the Old Testament, especially in the book of 1 Samuel, you see this great truth over and over again that Israel's success and failure was simply based on their attitude toward God and His Word. And one of the things that we see that just impacts us is simply this. Things never change. Man's problems are always the same. The cause and effect of man's problems haven't changed in 6,000 years of history. Now, we're given the impression... That because we are more advanced, 
We're given the oppression because we have more things in our society that we're more civilized. And we give the impression that because we are more educated, we have more knowledge, and we have more things in our society that make society a better place to live, that, that makes, there's, a, there's a difference between what it was in the Old Testament and what it is today. And that's simply not true. Man's basic problem has always been man's basic problem. And that doesn't change with time. The old sin nature of man, the old unregenerate spirit of man, and the old sin nature of a Christian will always be the same. And though it may look like it changes, one of the greatest lessons you can ever learn, and this is why the Bible is always so relevant, how many times I've heard somebody say, well, the Bible is really not relevant today because back then, you see, no, no, no. Back then, that's just as relevant as it is today because man's old sin nature hasn't gotten any better. It is the same today as it was. And that's why the great truth comes to home when you restudy the Old Testament that, uh, uh, that the principles of the Word of God, when we violate them, they have consequences. And the consequences are the same no matter where you're at in history. And when you look at this and you understand, you'll find that the nation of Israel failed because they failed to keep and follow and obey the principles of God. And in your life and my life, six, 4,000 years later, when we fail in our marriages, when we fail in our mothership, our fathership, when we fail with our family, when we fail in our own personal lives, when we have trouble, when we have heartache, when we do dumb things that cause us the consequences of sin, it is simply because, and no other reason ever will it be, other than the fact we have violated biblical principles, and when you violate biblical principles, sometimes you can get away with it, most of the times you cannot. And the biblical principles in the Bible are like the law of gravity. What goes up must come down. And to everything that we do wrong, there is a consequence. Maybe some things we do are not as big a consequence as others. But when you compound them and you add a life of violated biblical principles, of not doing what God wants you to do, it catches up with you after a while. Now, the book of 1 Samuel takes place about 300 years after the book of Judges. And the breakdown is really easy to follow. It's really easy. And all these breakdowns I'm giving you ought to go in the beginning of your Bible. If you've got a wide margin Bible, you need to put all this information at the first page there. So when you look at it, you've got everything at your, at your fingertips. Someday, most of you are going to be teaching somebody the Bible. And when you're teaching somebody the Bible, they're going to ask you questions about the Bible. When you go to that book, you want to, and, and this is the way it works for me. If you think I'm smart enough to know everything about the Bible that I can answer the questions that you ask me on Thursday night or whenever, you're crazy. I cheated. I put all those answers in my Bible. And when you ask me, I may know the books of the Bible a little bit and I may know some things about them, but I don't know much more than I'm giving you. But what I have done is I have cataloged in there that when I go to the book of 1 Samuel, when I open that first page, I have everything at my fingertips right there to take you anywhere and wear you out for the next 10 hours with information about the book of Samuel. Why? Because I got a photograph. I've had people ask me, do you have a photographic memory? No, I don't have a photographic memory. I'm out of film. I don't even have a flashbulb memory, man. I can't remember anything. I lose my car keys 10 times a day. What are you talking about? I can go to the mall, and if I didn't have that little button on my thing that makes my horn beep, I'd never find my car. No, I do not. But I do have a book that's got wide margins in it. <laughs> and, and when you write down those things in there and then you spend time with the Word of God, then you learn how that thing lays itself out. So 
the book of Samuel breaks down real easily. Chapter 1 and through chapter 12 talks about Samuel as judge. Chapter 13 through chapter 31 <coughs> talks about Saul as king. Now that's a natural division. You're going to find, <coughs> along with that, <coughs> in those stories, you're going to find some of the greatest New Testament principles for your life and my life that are apropos to the 20th century that you're ever going to find. Now from a doctrinal standpoint, and a doctrinal standpoint, as I've taught you many, many times, relates how the Bible relates to the theme of the Bible or the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. That's the doctrinal application. From the, from the doctrinal aspect of the, of, of the book of 1 Samuel, it's filled with passages about the second coming of Christ, the tribulation period. There's uh, at least two types of antichrist in this book, and there's types of Christ. And you have all that material that point to and give you pictures and understanding of those prophetic events that are going to take place. Obviously, well, we don't have time to go through all of that. My plan is, as we spend time on Thursday night coming through the Bible, and one-on-one -on -one in Bible study, those things will actually be filled in in time once I give you the outline. So, it all works together. But basically, <clears throat> and when you come to the latter part of the book under Saul, chapter 13 through chapter 31, Saul is our next type of the Antichrist. He's the next type of the Antichrist. No question about it. He takes over the nation of Israel, just like the Antichrist will do in the tribulation period. You'll notice that he is not God's choice. He's the people's choice. And the Antichrist comes first, and then Christ comes second. So Saul shows up first, and then David, the greatest type of Christ outside of Joseph, shows up second. That's how it works. And it, all those principles are built around that. <clears throat> and you'll find that taught in the book of Revelation chapter 12 and 13, where the Antichrist comes to earth first, and then you'll find in Revelation chapter 19, where the Lord Jesus Christ comes to earth second. And fall, Saul sets up the false kingdom, just like the Antichrist does. David sets up the real kingdom, just like Christ will in Revelation chapter 19. We'll talk more about that later. But as you look at it, and that's the kind of way the doctrinal thing lays out, <clears throat> but for us, for us, we see the great New Testament principle that is taught uh, really in Philippians chapter 4. And here's the picture of Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says this. You don't have to turn to it. You just listen to it. It says, my God shall supply all of your need. Most of you know it. My God shall supply all of your need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The Bible says that God shall supply all of your need. The principle that we have in the, taught in the book of 1 Samuel is, is what happens when you get more than what you need? What happens when you ask God for what you want instead of what you need? There is a process in the Bible of asking God for things. And the process in the Bible of asking God for what we think we want is biblical principles. The book of 1 Samuel, firstly in the, in the first uh, 12 chapters shows us the cause and effect of what happens when we want something that God doesn't want us to have and we take what we want over what our needs are. You see, the nation of Israel had a need. That need was for a king. And God wanted to give them a king. But they didn't want the king that God had. They didn't want the king that met their needs. They wanted the king that met their wants. And that was Saul. And that little story right there that you're going to look, we're going to look at here in great detail. We're going to look at those two aspects. You're going to see those great New Testament principles, and you're going to look and understand, hopefully by the time we leave today, that when you violate those, uh, that you see what happens. Now, looking at it in our breakdown, let's talk about the book of 1 Samuel. 
And in the first part of the book, we have the life of Samuel. And there's some great lessons in this. And I wish we had time this morning to do this in the detail that it deserves. But here again, this is another Thursday night question at some point. But let me kind of break the book down for you by chapters here. And then we'll come back and the things we've already talked about, we'll put them in perspective as we go through. But when you come to chapter 1, chapter 2, and 3, and 4, what you've got there is a great story about the little guy Samuel. And you've got a great picture of his mother. And a great picture of how God calls a young man or a young lady into the service of God. We find all the elements here, all the components. And I know that you look at this and you think to yourself, well, you know what, I read it and I didn't see that. Well, let me me kind of break it down for you. First of all, let's talk about Hannah. Hannah is his mother. Hannah is one of the seven barren women in the Bible. Remember last week I told you that there were seven marriages in the Bible that picture our marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ at the marriage of the Lamb? Well, there are seven barren women in the Bible. And those seven barren women represent the nation of Israel who are barren, who is barren and cannot bear fruit. And I don't know if you have them or not. I'll give them to you very quickly. The first one is Sarah in Genesis chapter 11. The second one is Rebekah, Genesis chapter 26. The third one is Rachel in Genesis chapter 29. These may not be in order. The next one is Hannah, where we're at in 1 Samuel 1. The next one is Manoah in Judges chapter 13. The sixth one is the Shumanite woman in 2 Kings 4. And then the last one would be Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. These are seven women who are barren, who do not have children. And maybe they have them later, but they don't have them at that point when they want to have them. And what they picture is the nation of Israel, who right now is barren. Therefore, when you look at these women and study their lives, when they bear the fruit, that fruit is always usually a picture of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and, 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 and how he comes to deliver the nation of Israel, and Samuel's no different. When you look at this thing and you see the young man Samuel, you've got a picture of exactly what God sees in some of you guys and some of you gals sitting out here right now. Now, for you ladies, let me give you a great devotion on Hannah. And uh, Hannah is a, is a great study in the Bible. And there's four aspects of her life that really you need to see. And the first one is her sorrow. And you'll find that in 1 verse 11. The second thing is her supplication. You'll find that in chapter 1, 11 through 19. The next thing is her surrender. And you'll find that in chapter 1, verse 20 through 28. And the last one would be her song of victory. You'll find that in chapter 2, verse 11. You know what it does? It shows you, it shows you, Her sorrow over not bearing fruit. It shows you her prayer life and asking God and dealing with God and telling God what she'll do if God gives her the fruit. But then it shows that she has to surrender some things first. And then it shows that God gives the victory. And because of that victory, she has everything that God wants her to have. And God gives her her supplication and ends her sorrow. What a beautiful picture it is as far as us as Christians. Because sometimes when we want something, sometimes, and what she wanted was right, she wanted to bear fruit, there was no problem with that. But she had to get to the point where she surrendered it all before she got it. And what a great principle that is for you and for me as a Christian. Because you know what? Sometimes when we ask God for something and God doesn't give it to us, it's because we haven't surrendered everything we've already got to God. God looks at it like this. How stupid for me to give you something else you're asking for when you want it from me and you're telling me that this has to come from me when everything else you've got you've kept for yourself. Now that's a basic simple principle, but that's the way God looks at it. 
In other words, God wants us to surrender it all. Now, when you come to that point that you can surrender it all, then you're going to sing the song of victory because God's going to give you the desires of your heart. And we see from this that God uses her and God uses the man of God, Eli, together to train this young man to bring him to the point where God, uh, God uses him. You know what her responsibility was, among others? Not only is she a good mother, not only is she a mother that really takes charge of teaching him the Word of God, but this mother understands how important it is for that young man to be with the man of God. Because young men today need a role model. Young ladies today need a role model. And her job outside of tre- teaching, tre- teaching that child at home and loving that child and praying for that child and recognizing from God all the things that she was supposed to do, the second thing she saw her responsibility was was to get her little boy where the man of God was so he could get the principles of God from the, from the perspective that God wanted it to have. And that's why God put the church. Obviously, the most important aspect in your life, without a question about it, is your family. That is your first ministry. That's where the home base starts. And that is, and you study her life, you see that. You see that her life, uh, in her home, she recognizes it. She loves God. She wants what God wants. She sees in her, she just wants her boy, her child, to be used of God. And she does everything in her power to make that happen. The second thing she does is everything in her power to make sure that boy is where the man of God is in her life, that that man of God is able to give that boy what she can't. It's those two aspects that build a young man or a young lady's life. That's why God gave the church. And that's why God gave men. I'm not just talking about myself. I'm talking about godly men who are in the church who teach and live the life of example that other young kids growing up can see. And there has to be that balance in their life. And between those two in concert, they produced one of the greatest young men that this, this world has ever seen as far as the Bible's concerned. Now, I got to tell you, <clears throat> this thing about Samuel is really an incredible thing. Because when you come to chapter 3, there's some weird statements here <clears throat> that really step outside uh, the time period that we're in and almost put this thing in a New Testament context. For one, it says this, chapter 3, verse 1. It simply, out of the blue, says this, that the word of the Lord was precious in those days. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. Now that is a verse that's a great verse, but that you don't find any other verse anywhere in the Old Testament like that. If that you could lift that thing out and put that in the New Testament anywhere in the church age and it would fit. It's really out of place in the Old Testament simply because they didn't have the complete word of God. But yet here's a place that shows you that this picture and this story about Samuel in the first four chapters is a picture of a young man and a young life today and how a mom and a preacher took this kid and trained that kid with the same desire in their heart to make that thing, to make him God's man. And the Bible says in chapter 3, verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he did not let none of his words fall to the ground. You see that thing? He developed the right attitude toward the Word of God. You know what you got in this story, very quickly? Here's what you got. She raises him up, she brings him to the man of God, and she says, Here. I've taken him as far as I can. I've laid the foundation in his life. He now needs a man in his life that's going to lay out the principles and be for him. And she's got much wisdom in this thing. When that takes place, you know what happens? He goes to work. It's a picture of a young man going to work 
within a local New Testament church ministry. And in the process of working in that temple, God calls him. God calls him three times. And he, the Bible's very clear in those passages that he doesn't understand the voice of the Lord. That simply means that a young Christian and a young man, when they just got saved or they're just getting into the Word of God, they don't always understand when God's speaking to them. They don't know how to, they don't know how to separate emotion from truly when God speaks to you. They don't understand. They may go do something and it not work out the way they think, because, and because it didn't, they may think that God is now against them. They don't understand the biblical principles to the point where they understand how to live their lives, operate their ministries, and in time, raise their families by biblical principles. So he goes to, he wakes up, he thinks he hears God speaking to him, he goes to Eli. And he said, did you call me? Eli said, I didn't call you. Go lay down. He goes the second time. Did you call me? Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. The third time, the Bible says he goes to Eli, and the Bible says that the old man perceived that God was calling the child. Now let me tell you what happens in most churches today. Young man comes down, he says to the preacher, I think God's called me to preach. Guy says, praise the Lord, slaps him on the back, hands him a brochure on a Bible college someplace, and ships him off. And they always ship him off to the one where you get the kickbacks from. And, all, and, that's, and that's how it goes. That is how it's supposed to go. The old man, when he heard him first couple times, he said, you know what, go back to sleep. In other words, when you come to me and you say, I think God's calling me to do something, you know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to do you tell you the same thing Eli said. Keep on doing what you're doing. Don't jump to any conclusions. And just give that thing some time. Second time, go back to sleep. Stay. But in the process of time, it was clear to Eli that God was going to use the kid. And there lies one of the greatest principles anywhere in the Word of God of how to deal with young men and young ladies as God begins to work in their lives and to train them from day one to the finished process that they come to the point where they grow in the Lord and they understand that God was with him. They understand how to discern God's voice. They understand how to discern the Word of God. And then they firmly understand that the rest of their lives, the rest of their ministries, that none of the words of God can ever fall to the ground. Incredible study. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. We see Samuel <clears throat> trying to apply the Word of God in an age where they don't want to listen to the Word of God. And we find that, uh, you know, he struggles to, uh, he tries to bring them back on track. The Philistines are giving them all kinds of problems. They're taking the ark of God. And he's, he's single-handedly trying to stand for the Lord in a place where nobody wants to stand for the Lord. And then when you come to chapter 8, probably one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament that teach this great principle, be careful what you want. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful when you get your will over God's will. Because, oh my, what a great lesson this is. Because in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, we see the great principle where they get their man instead of God's man. And that simply is a, is a teaching and it shows you and I what happens in our life when we get what we want instead of what we need. My God should supply all of your need. The worst thing you could ever have in your life, <clears throat> the worst thing you could ever have in your life is what you want over what your needs are. 
How many times I've heard, and I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. <clears throat> How many times have I heard somebody say, boy, would I give anything in the world? I mean, this week the lottery was $290 million. Everybody, everybody that's got any sense sat down and thought to myself, man, if I could just win that, my, my problem would be over. You know what? If you won it, your problem would just start. You think 200 million, you, I had an old preacher say one time to me, I heard him preach, he didn't say it to me, he's preaching, but it's so true. You know what he said? He said, <clears throat> he said, I'd rather be on a, and he was an old southern guy, he didn't have a lot of cooth. He said, I'd rather be on a railroad track in a stalled car with a door jammed with a freight train 20 feet away moving 90 miles an hour in the will of God than be home in my bed sleeping with my family all snuggled up nice and warm out of the will of God. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. The will of God and being where God exactly wants you to be is incredible. And yet I know that, you know, we think, wow, if I was rich, that'd solve all my problems. No, no, no. It would just give you a bunch more problems you ain't got. You say, well, God can trust me with a million dollars. Well, then how come he hasn't given it to you? I mean, I'm not just talking, you and giving it to me either. And there's a great concept here of getting what you want versus what God wants you to have. And there's some things right off the start you better begin to understand. I know this is going to be a new concept to some of you, but you better learn it. Come over to Ezekiel chapter 14. Now here's why you can ask yourself many, many times when you see a circumstance and you see a situation and you say, how did that happen? Here's, here's the answer. Here's what happened. And you better learn this about God going in. Because it's easy to get what we want and then give God the credit for it I'll tell you what, we live in a day and age, I don't know, I, I, I just don't know how God changes his mind so much. I've had people tell me, well, this is what God called me to do, and then three weeks later or a year later, God changed his mind. Somebody said, well, this is what God wanted me to do, and then two weeks later, God changes his mind. Let me tell you something. Here's the problem, and you better get this down, because this is a great principle. 14.1, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1. <clears throat> Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their heart, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all, uh, 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 of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, watch it, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Broken down in a simple translation, God will give you a lie to believe if you want one. You see, God always answers us on the basis of our attitude of heart. The problem with the nation of Israel is when they came before Samuel and they said, we want a king. And Samuel said, God's going to give you a king. And they said, we don't want that king. We want a king like all the other nations have. 
Samuel says, but you don't understand. You're not supposed to be like all the other nations. You're supposed to be a peculiar people, a different people. You're supposed to be somebody that is set apart. Your king, God has for you, that's going to be the great king, that's going to be God's choice. They said, we don't want God's best. We want what we want. And you know what God gave them? God gave them what they wanted. God gave them the king that they wanted based on the multitude of idols in their heart. When you come to God with a preconceived idea in your mind, this is the way it is, and this is what I want, how many times we've come to God to ask God for something knowing in our hearts we were going to work it out to get it no matter what God did? How many times we've come to God with a supposition in our hearts, God, I want this, I want this, when really you already had it already worked out. Let me tell you something. I told you this before. I've said it many, many times that you better be prepared to change anything in your life, anything you believe, anything you've ever wanted, any desire you ever had. When God shows you clearly in the Word of God, that's not what you're supposed to have. It isn't about what you want. It's about what you need. It isn't about what I want. It's about what I need. And we've all found ourselves in this place with the nation of Israel. And that's why some of us, some of us, some of God's people have never come to the point where they could ever get out of the problems that they've got into in their life simply because they built their whole life building what they wanted over what God wanted to give them. And they go to church, they talk about loving God, and they're so far from where God is in their own life, they're so far, and this great principle has weighted them down to the place where they just wanted what they wanted over what God wanted, and you put your will over God's will, there are some natural consequences that go along with it. And Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, is one of that great principle that simply says, if you come to God with something in your heart already that you want, and you're not open and honest before God, I mean, you can fool your wife. You can fool your kids. You can fool me. You can fool everybody in this world. But you cannot fool God. And when God sees you, He looks right down in your heart, and He sees the very dark, naked depths of your soul, and He knows exactly what your motive is. And God will give you a lie to believe if you want one. You reject truth. You have your pet doctrine, your pet sin. I've seen God's people justify everything in their life because that's what they wanted to do. I've seen them justify everything. I, I mean, when the Bible is very clear, and yet their circumstances gave them a clause that made it different. God gives you the answer to your prayers based on your attitude of heart. So when you come to Him, it just better be, God, whatever you want is okay with me. And boy, when I look at this, I see in a lot of ways, I see in a lot of ways that Samuel is just like a preacher today. He preaches what's right to his people, and they reject it and do what they want to do. He tells them what the Word of God says. He tells them what God expects of them. And they take it and they don't do anything with it. And they turn around and do exactly what they want to do. Boy, that is in the day and age that we live in. Then from chapter 13 through 31, we see the man Saul. And you see, when you get your way, and, I, and this is incredible. Not only, does, not only do they get their own way, but before they ever get their own way, God in chapter 8, eight uh, chapter 8 through 10 through 18, somewhere in there, he tells them what this guy's going to be like. He tells them what he's going to do to them. He tells them that the consequences of their bad choice is going to be. Wow, you know what? Before you even do it, this book tells you what the consequences if you're not doing what God wants you to do is going to be. Hey, you know what? We're still doing. Boy, are we a mess? 
I heard a liberal preacher say one time, well, I don't know how God can send anyone to hell. My problem is, I don't know how God, knowing the way I am and the way you are, I don't know how God can take anybody to heaven. I don't have any problem at all seeing God send us to hell. I just don't understand what he sees in us that he wants us up there with him. No wonder we've got to change this before we get up there. You think the devil let a revolt? Well, most Baptists would revolt that thing and half the time the devil did. And that's why God's going to change it. But I'm telling you, God says, you're going to get your way, and when you get your way over God's way, and you throw that thing out, and you throw the principles out, boy, you get a light that goes along with it. And this is why all this stuff helps you figure out why today God's people's lives are the way they are. This is why they get so messed up. Violation of biblical principles. Your will over God's will. God says one thing. God says, don't marry this person. You say, I'm going to marry him anyhow. God says, don't do that. I'm going to do it anyhow. And that's where you're at. That's where you're at. I mean, I don't know how clear it can be. Now, on top of that, Saul's a type of the Antichrist. We already talked about that. And we'll see that as we go through here. He's a type of the Antichrist. He's also a type of a 20th century Christian or the 20th century pastor who leads God's people into apostasy. And all they get is a lie from him. He is so typical. He is so typical. Now you've got to remember, I've told you this before. I've told you before that we are in a Laodicean church period. I've walked you through time and time again those seven periods of church history. I've showed you how they relate to history. I've showed you how they relate to your life. I've showed you how all the warnings in there. And yet, over and over and over again, when we come through the Bible, it keeps coming back to this period of time. And somebody says, well, you know what? How, can he, how come we can't preach a message without coming back to latency in church? Because every message I get into in the Bible takes me right back to latency in church. I'm telling you, if there's any point you've got to get today, you've got to get to the point that we are living in a day and age of apostasy and you are going to have to work at building your relationship with God and it's going to be tough because every pressure around us, every peer pressure we have to deal with wants to carry us the other way. And when you get into chapter 13, 14, and 15, you see the kind of leader Saul was. It is a tragic thing. What's the Laodicean mean? Laodicean means rights of the people. That's what it means. I brought you through those seven churches, told you what every one of those names mean. The Laodicean church, the word Laodicea means rights of the people, justice for the people. It's a picture of the time and day and age that we're studying right now when Israel wanted their rights and wanted their justice over God's rights. And God gave them a king. And we're living a day and age today where God's people want their right. Remember I told you, boy, this answers a lot of problems for you. I told you that we're living in a day and age that's just like this time where men want to take what they want over what God wants and they don't care what God wants. They want what they want because we live in a very fleshly Christianity, a very unspiritual Christianity, and men want what they want when they want it and give God credit for it. And just like the nation of Israel, God's given them a pastor. God's given them spiritual leaders based on the attitude of their own heart. Simple. You know what Saul does? First thing he does in 13 chapter, 19, uh, 13 chapter verse 19 is he takes the Bible away from him. He puts all the smiths out of business, the blacksmiths who made the swords. He took the swords. He took their weapons. He turned it over to the Philistines, and the Philistines made sure that they didn't have a sword to do battle with. What we've done in Christianity, if we've taken the 
the Word of God, and we've turned it over to the secular world to print our Bibles, and therefore they have taken the Word of God. And I'm telling you something. You better stock some up. If Jesus doesn't come in five or six years, you won't be able to buy a King James Bible. They would have got rid of it now if they could have. He takes the Bible from them. I'll tell you something else he does. 13.3, he takes credit for something somebody else does. That's the way they are today. They never leave their their palaces. They're always out there and they never really do anything. And when some of the little guys out there who love God, who try to serve God, who try to do what's right, they always are taken to credit. When they go someplace, when they speak at some conference, everybody looks at them and says, wow, what a great church you've got. What a great pastor you are. What about this? Look at that. Look at that. And he doesn't know what's going on. It's the little guy out there that's building it. Long before I was a Christian, I understood this concept. Long before I was ever loved God or ever read my Bible through one time, God taught me this. God taught me this when I was in the army. You know, there's two kind of commanders you have in the military. You have the guys that are that will that the men trust, and you have the guys that the men don't trust. In Vietnam, we shot a lot. Of, we we saw a lot of bad things happen, and one of the bad things that happened was a lot of American officers got killed. Unfortunately, not by the enemy, by their own men. They used to call it fragging because the leadership was so bad and young men were, weren't disciplined anyhow and they were in a place they didn't want to be in and they, 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 they were not going to let some 90-day wonder who didn't know what he was doing lead them into a place where they were going to give their life in a war they didn't believe in anyhow. Now, that's a tragic thing to say, but that's the way it is. But not everybody was that way. I had the privilege years ago to meet one of the greatest men that I ever thought, and he influenced my life, and he, I don't even know him. I mean, I know about him. He doesn't know me. I saw him one time when I was in the military when he came to our base, and they had a big thing for him, but his name was Arthur, Arthur Simons. He was a colonel. He never got to make general. You know why he never got to make general? Because the other generals didn't like him. You know why they didn't like him? Because he was politically incorrect. You know what they used to call him? They used to call him the Bull. Bull Simons. He's the guy that led the Tan San raid to get the uh, Vietnam prisoners out of Tan San back there in the, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s. He was something else. You know what his role was? He never went and let his troops go anywhere. He didn't go himself. You see, most guys, they stay back at the base and call it in from there. Some of the guys get real brave and they get in a helicopter and stay five miles away so they can do by radio. Not the bull. He was right down in the middle of it. There wasn't any firefight you were in in your life where the, you couldn't look around the bull wasn't right there. They were trapped. I, I read the guy's life story. I talked to guys used to talk about him. I've seen him on video. And I've seen him talking about it and, 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 re, and talking about the way that he was. And boy, you're out there and it's hitting the fan, boy, and they're coming over the walls and they're down there and you're all surrounded and you're cut off and there ain't nobody to help you. Let me tell you something. It is so reassuring to look behind you and see the big old bull walking up and down that line in the middle of everybody firing at him and telling everybody to hold that line. I ain't dying here today. Well, that builds something in you that makes you just want to stay there and fight. Some of you saw the movie, we, we Were Soldiers. Hal Moore, another one, Colonel Moore. You know what his philosophy was? In combat, first man in, I'll be the last man out. 
He never went into combat, but he wasn't the first one off the helicopter, and he never got back on till all his men were accounted for. You know what? You may die in battle, and you may die in combat, but there is an assurance that there is somebody leading this battle that wants your best interest at his heart. And I can't tell you what that instills in young men. I can't even tell you what that instills in a soldier, that he knows he, he may get killed, and he may die, but he ain't here by himself. And the guy that's telling him what to do isn't somebody back there in air-conditioned office talking between beers and sending letters down and radio messages down. He is right there in the thick of it with you. And let me just say this. Let me make the point for you. That's the kind of pastors we need today. That's the kind of men we need to lead this church today. We need men that are going to stand in there and you don't have to look around and wonder where they're at. Any battle, any spiritual warfare you're in, you're shoulder to shoulder. You're in the same trench. You're in the same mud. You die, we die. We all go down together or we all stand together. It doesn't make any difference. But as long as we do it together, that wasn't Saul. Saul was one of those kind of guys that he, he sent everybody else to do it. And then he took credit for it. Never did it himself. When it came down to fighting David and Goliath, he was the biggest man there. The Bible says he was head and shoulders above everybody else. What did he do? He sent David in. He sent David in. Why? Because he was a coward. That's why. He puts him under an oath in 1424. And when he puts him under that oath, it's a, it's a Christian oath. Oh, yeah, it's exactly what they do today. He says, you guys are going to go up there and fight. But he says, I'm going to put you under an oath before God. Don't eat anything before you fight, while you fight, or after you fight. And then the people go out there and they're getting whipped. Because they're, not, they're hungry and they're weak. They haven't eaten. Because he put them under a Christian oath that has nothing to do with God had everything to do with Saul. Boy, how I've seen him do that today. I've seen him put you under that old, that old oath of legalism. Well, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And they give you a set of rules that have nothing to do with the Word of God. And then they wonder why you fail in your families. They wonder why you have problems. They wonder why you can't have the victory. And you know what Saul did? He did the same thing 20th century preachers do. When he told them not to take the food, and he put them under an oath that God had nothing to do with, and then they failed, instead of getting up and saying, I was the problem, oh, no, no. The 20th century modern-day preacher is never the problem. He always blames it on his people. And it wasn't the people's problem. It was his problem. He leaves his son. 1445, his own son, to die on a battlefield. In 13.8, he offers up the sacrifice of a priest when he's not a priest. Clearly showing me that most of these guys trying to be something they're not. In 15.1 through 35, the whole chapter, you got the story of Agag and the sheep. God says, you know what? Kill Agag, kill the sheep, kill everybody down there because of what they're associated with. Samuel shows up. Saul won the battle. He's popping around like some old big guy with all medals on his chest, walking around, shaking hands, and talking to his cronies, getting ready to plan the next fellowship meeting, talk about all the great victories God's done. Samuel comes up and he says, what's going on? Saul said, well, God gave us a great victory. He says, great victory? What is this bleeding of the sheep I hear? All his life, Saul, as the modern 20th century spiritual leader in America who are the people's choice because God gave them to you after your own heart. Total disregard for what God says to him to do. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23 lays it out very clearly. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected thee as king. 
He winds up a spiritual suicide. He loses God's spirit and gets an evil spirit. He never learned the great principle in 1 Samuel 15, 22. That is the greatest principle taught probably in all the Bible for you and for me. It simply says to obey is better than to sacrifice. God doesn't care what you do. How could you do it? If you do it in violation of the principle of the word of God, you wasted your time. Then in chapter 16, you have the introduction of God's man. And all when you got this thing, but contrast. Remember contrast? The contrast between Samuel, or excuse me, Saul and David is, a, is a much to learn. In Saul, we saw the people's choice. In David, we saw God's choice. In Saul, we saw a man who always perpetrated to be a great leader, but never was. And David, we see a man who took the humble position of just being a servant and became a great leader. Oh, let me tell you something. I've heard him say it so many times. Every time I hear him say it, I want to throw up. How many times I've heard him pat so-and-so on the back, bring him up, and he said, Now, I want to introduce to you I want to one of the greatest men in Christianity, one of the greatest preachers you're ever going to hear, a man who has built a great church, a man who was a great Christian, a man who's great doing this, great doing that. Let me tell you something. There are no great men in Christianity. There are no great pastors. There are no great preachers. There are no great men who build great works. There are just men who are sinners saved by a great God, and God uses them. Saul, he was the great. David, he was the little guy. But oh, when you study their lives, you see what God looks for when God looks for a man. You'll see it. You'll see it. I mean, the calling of David was God's man over Israel's man. The people had their choice. And God gave them one after their own heart. And He persecuted them. And He brought them into bondage. And He put them under false Christian concepts and principles. And He tried to dest almost destroy them. And He wound up being a mess in His own life. You know, they violated Bible principles from one day to the next. Finally, God gave them David. Oh, when you find the calling of David, you know how it goes. Down there in chapter 16... They're down doing there looking at the sons of Jesse. And they're bringing them all through. And they're looking how tall they are. How big they are. How strong they are. And they pass through and pass through and pass through. And at the end of that passing review, one of them says, well, he's not here. And he says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? And he said, oh yeah, I got a little scrawny run out there by the name of David. But I didn't even bring him in. Because he's just a youth. He's just a kid. And he only weighs about 90 pounds. And he's out there and he's keeping the sheep. He said, God said, bring him in. They brought David in and God said, that's the man I want. And God taught him a great lesson in verse 7. And oh, you better look at it and you better take it with you and you better never forget it. Because God gave his personal opinion on his man. He says, look not on his countenance or the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for a man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. David may have been little, he may have been the run of the litter, but let me tell you something. He treats it a great, a great principle. A great principle. That it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but rather the size of the fight in the dog. I learn that every day in my house. No, no, I got three of them. I got a brown one that weighs a 967 pounds. He looks like a brown bear. 
I got a black one as sleek and as fast and she's got more wisdom and she can outturn, outburn and she can do anything. And I got a little runt, a little, a little white one, a little runt. And she's got bad legs. She's got, she limps all the time. And she doesn't have, and, and I'll tell you what, that little runt will whip the snot out of those two other dogs. That big old brown one, he can knock things over. I mean, he bums, and I'll tell you what, I've seen her where she chased him with his tail between his legs, and the big goof hides under the table and looks around the corner with his tail between his legs. And that little blonde, snarly little dog just stands there with those sweet little brown eyes and that little brown face and those teeth hanging out about the hair, and she barks, everybody listens. You know why? She's the runt. But she's got some fight in her. Old buddy, he's the big boy. I mean, he's, I know he's mentally retarded, but he's the big boy. I mean, you throw the, take the, take the tennis racket with Tinker, and you whack that tennis ball, and that thing will be coming at 60 miles an hour, and she'll just go, and grab it. I hit that thing straight up in the air, Tinker's looking around for it, Daisy's looking up, she sees it, never loses it, she runs in stride, and she'll jump to that thing, and catch that thing in her mouth. I take the ball, the buddy, and I, because he never gets it. I throw it to him from here to you. It hits him in the nose, bounces off, and he goes, after the fact. You just take the ball over and get it to him and pet him. He runs around like he just won the World Series. I'm telling you, it ain't the big guys in this world are getting the job done. That's you little guys. It's the guys that everybody looks at and says, ah, he'll never do it. Oh, you better learn this great principle. God doesn't look like man looks. Man looks at his degrees. Man looks at his countenance. Man looks at the way he speaks. Man looks at where he's been to school. Man looks at all the titles he's got. Man looks at all the greatness that he has. And God just looks deep down inside and sees some little guy that just wants to love his word. Chapter 17 and 18. You see the story of David and Goliath. Saul's a coward. He should have fought him. But he sends David. And then just like most 20th century preachers, when he sends somebody out to do his work and they do the job and people recognize that they're doing the job because he's so inferior in himself and has such an inferiority complex and he's so intimidated by everything everybody, he hates David because David got the victory instead of him. And all the great story of David and Goliath, I wish we had time to do it. We don't. One side it's a great picture of the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. On the inspirational side, it's a great picture of the great battles of your life and the giants out there that try to stop you in your everyday life, Ephesians chapter 6. And it all lines up. Saul's the leader. He should have been the one, but he didn't. And after that thing, boy, you start to see something. After that thing, you start to see something because in chapter 18, verse 9, right after David kills Goliath, the Bible makes one little statement. Oh, and you better mark it. Saul was a coward. Just like most guys today. And he has guys in his church that can do the work and do the job. And when he's too scared to do it, he sends them out to do it and they go out and get it done. And the people in the church look at him and say, well, you did a good job. And the Bible says in 18.9 that Saul eyed David from that day forward. Target on his back. Let me tell you something. That book will put a bullseye on your back quicker than anything in this world. And in chapter 19 through chapter 22, you have the story of Jonathan and David. Oh, what a great story this is. Oh, this is the fulfillment of that verse in Proverbs that says, A friend born for adversity. You see, 
as you go through the story, Saul hates David. But the reason why he hates him, because David has the power of God in his life and Saul doesn't have it. And that's so typical of lady to see in preachers today. They're scared to death. They don't know the Bible themselves and afraid to death that somebody will find out. They don't want to, they don't want to ever get into a conversation with you that ever spend any time with you in the Bible because you may ask them a question they don't know. And boy, after that battle with Goliath, as I said already, we see it. And we see the Bible says that he eyed David. Oh, he didn't like David. And that dislike turns into a great hatred. And he tries through the next couple of chapters a number of ways to get David killed. In chapter 18, verse 12, it simply says this. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from him. Here's how it works. You're any time in the ministry at all. Here's how it works. Trust me. Here's how it works. They're going to hate you because of that book. When you have the word of God in your heart and you love that book, they're going to hate you. God uses you in your ministry and not them in theirs. God hands it in your life. Whatever checks you write, God cashes because of the book. They devise every way in the world to kill you, but God blesses you. They're scared to death of you. They're intimidated by you. And they will stand in your way and they will try to do everything they can to stop you. But you know what? God's with you. And as long as you stay with God and as long as the book is yours and you love it with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul in time, they'll wind up to be a spiritual suicide and you'll wind up to be a man after God's own heart. And let me tell you something. I'm going to explain in a minute. Spiritual suicide doesn't always mean you die. You know how David got through it? Oh, yeah. David was the most hunted man. He was the most hated man by Saul. Hated, Saul hated him with a passion, tried to kill him, devised every way. From marrying his own daughter, he come up with every scheme in the world to get rid of David because he hated David because David had a God and he had a book. And God gave David what he needed to survive in this old world. You know what he gave him? He gave him a friend named Jonathan. Jonathan knows who's the problem. Jonathan knows who's right and who's wrong. And Jonathan very quietly protects God's man and God's king, David. And you see that Jonathan takes that under his wing to make sure that David doesn't get killed. We see Saul continue to go on without the power of God. And you begin to see another great principle, how that the farther you go without God, the farther away you get and the more desperate you become. And in chapter 23 through chapter 31, Saul turns to witchcraft. He comes to the place where he goes down to the witch at Endor. And the farther you get from God, I'm telling you, the more desperate you get. And finally, his death by suicide. And I'm telling you, not every time you read suicide in the Bible doesn't mean that God's going to kill somebody or somebody that doesn't do what's right with the Word of God dies. You can die spiritually long before you die physically. There's lots of God's people that are walking around, breathing air, and talking about this, and going to church and carrying their Bibles, and they're just as dead spiritually on the inside as any dead man in the cemetery. But old Jonathan is there. Jonathan gets him through those times. Thank God for the Jonathans of life. Chapter 30 through chapter 31, we see the great passing of power from the people's choice to God's choice. And you know what? Over the years, though I studied this thing and laid this thing out, I, I've seen some great principles. And the Bible never ceases to amaze me how that you can be reading someplace totally different and God will bring up a principle and a verse that brings it right back to where you're at. 
And I've talked to you about God's choice versus the people's choice. Talked to you about Saul and David and all the New Testament principles that go along with it. But you know what? There's two verses in the Bible that lay these men out better than anybody I could ever, anything I could ever say. And I don't even think when he was talking about it, he was talking about these two guys. But you know what? That's the beauty of the Bible. It's principles. And even though it may not be talking about these guys particularly, it's talking about these guys in general. Because these guys picture something that is in our world today. David pictures God's man who believes the book, who stands by the book. Saul pictures the people's choice that God gave them because of their attitude of heart, because they already had their mind made up that the word of God wasn't true. And they wanted a better rendition. But when you come back there to Jeremiah chapter 3, he says this, the nation of Israel. 3.15 And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. You see, that's God's choice. That was David. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then you come over to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 5, and you find Saul. Because this man simply says, Stand by thyself. Come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. One's Saul, one's David. One's God's man, one's the people's man. And that's pretty much the way it lays out. And then lastly, I want to give you this, and then we're done with the book of 1 Samuel. This is probably, for you as a husband and wife, the greatest verse I could give you as a husband and wife ministry team. This has been my wife and I's verse for, golly, 20-some years. More than that, as long as we've been married together. But it's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible verse. And let me just say this. I know we're young right now. And I know that we're in the process of building a lot of things. One of the things that I'll never do, that I've learned over the years, is never to get in a hurry. We've got to build it one block at a time. There's no use trying to plan a lot of things and not doing anything well than just taking a few things and doing them really well. But my goal is simply this. God's given us a bunch of young couples. God's given us some older couples. God's given us some great singles. And I know that all of you in the mix. You see, I never bought into the concept that, I never bought into this concept. There's a lot of things that are taught in churches that are just crazy. I've heard all my life, you know, well, you can't mix singles and marriage together because, you know, they don't have anything in common. I've heard them say, well, you know, you can't mix younger people and older people together because they really don't have any social things in common. You know what? Let me tell you something. I found this to be true. When you make the basis of your church social issues, that's true. But when you make your church ministry-orientated, that's not true. Because I don't care if you're 20, 50, 30, 70, 80, 90, or 12. You all have ministry in common. And that is something that no age barrier blocks. And I'll tell you something else I've found. I've found that in the process of time, your social circles take care of themselves. Somebody does something over here that the younger people go to. Somebody does over here that the, that the, that the middle-aged people go to. Somebody does it over here and shuffleboard and I'll go to. You know? It's a thing where they all take care of themselves. The bottom line is ministry. 
And that's the tragedy in most churches. They build it on, they build it on the fun game stuff. They build it on the good times of having fun. And in that, that's true. You guys play softball on Friday night. And you get somebody that's in their 60s or in their 70s or 50s, 60s and 70s. Don't move as fast. Maybe don't move at all. They're not going to want to do that. But you take a sitting down with somebody, some of you older ladies, you take in time some of these younger ladies and teach them the Word of God and show them what you've learned in life, that they've got to learn in life. No age barrier there. Take some of your older guys that have been through some tough things in life. Take some of these younger guys that are just starting out in life. Being able to let them glean from your experience the mistakes we've made, the good things we've done. Invaluable. You see, that's the bottom line. And I know this in time. My goal, my goal, and I know we ain't got a lot of people here today, but if you pick this up and you list it on the tape, I'm talking to you too. My goal is to take every one of you that is, wants to and is willing to help you become everything that God wants you to be. Whether you're single right now, whether you're married, I don't care. My time is your time because I know that right now that that's the bottom line and the foundation of what we've got to start with in time. Once we get some things done here, I want to start taking you and showing you how to work with people in the Bible. And I'm not limiting it to anybody. I'm telling you right now, if you want to do it, it's up to you. It's your choice. This church will always be your choice. I'll never come to anybody and say, you need to do this. You know, let me tell you something. If, if you don't have the relationship with God that God speaks to you, and if he does, you don't yield to it, that's your problem. My job is to be open and honest and give you everything that you need. Your job is to do what God wants you to do with it. But I know this. Jesus doesn't come two or three years from now. God keeps adding to us. God keeps giving us young couples and couples and, and, and older folks that really want to learn the Bible that we can really t teach the Bible to and get it ready. Let me tell you something. There'll be all of you, all of you will be working with people's lives in the Word of God. Not in just discipleship. My goal is to fine-tune you to the place that you can take a marriage as a couple that's fallen apart and use the Bible and meet with them one-on-one. -on -one. What a great matchup that is. The wife take the gal, the husband take the guy, work with them separately, work with them together, help put that marriage back together. That in every aspect, no matter what the problems are, that you people are trained to be able to do that. That's ministry. And I'll tell you what, you get a lot more fulfillment and happy out of that than hitting a ball over the fence on Friday night. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. There is nothing more fulfilling in, in my life, and it's anybody's life. You just, some of you haven't tasted it yet. There is nothing more fulfilling in any Christian's life than to be used of God in the Word of God in somebody else's life. One-on-one. -on -one. Nothing in this world. Well, that point's going to come. And some of you, maybe, it may come faster for some of you than the others. In a husband and wife situation, There'll be times that maybe the husband seems like he does more or gets to do more than you do. In some situations, the woman may get, because of the husband's job, the woman may get to do more than the husband does. And you see, if you're not careful with that, you see, that can, you can let that defeat you. And I want to give you a verse that you need to take with you if you're married today. This verse, if you haven't already got it, needs to be your verse for ministry. It needs to be the verse that you, you, you build your life around together as husband and wife. It needs to be the verse that you understand where you're at with the Lord. 
It is found in chapter 30, verse 24. And it simply says this. And this is really all we're doing in the Bible is to get you to that point. I'm trying to, lay a, I'm trying to do a number of things right now between Sunday morning and Thursday night and a one-on-one time with you. I'm trying to do everything that I, and then add the other things into it. I'm all trying to bring it about to one, one goal, and that is to get you to the place where together, whether you're single, you're married, or whatever, you minister. And here's the bottom line. Chapter 30, verse 24. And this is for you, husband and wife. This is for you if you're single and someday you're going to have a prospective mate and you're going to get married. It says this. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as for his part that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. It simply says this. Wise, if you stay home with the kids while your husband goes out and does something, don't feel discouraged because you didn't get to go. I mean, you can be discouraged about it, but don't let it defeat you. Husbands, if there's times that you don't get to do something that your wife gets to do, it's okay. If you have the right attitude of heart, the Bible says you're a team. And as a team, the Bible says the person who goes down the battle, whether it be the husband or the wife, and the person that stays by the stuff, stays home with the kids, whether it be the husband or the wife, the bottom line is, at the judgment seat of Christ, they part alike. God blesses the attitude of your heart in serving Him. You're a team. My job is to make you a cohesive team. I've told you forth from the very beginning, this church will only be as strong as the individual members in it. And this church will only go as far as your attitude of loving that book more than anything else in this world. And your own personal marriages and your own personal lives and your own personal families will only go as far as the principles of that book that you can believe and claim for yourself. And if we're going to do anything for God in these last days, and I'm betting we will, it's going to come down to taking concepts just like an ad and understanding that husband and wives are teams, that we're all a team. There'll be times that you guys go preach that I won't. There'll be times that I preach that you don't. There'll be times that I work with people that you won't. There'll be times that the guy next to you works, there's times that your husband working with somebody and as the wife you're not. There'll be times the wife is working with somebody and the husband's not. You know what? Don't get your nose bent in a joint because you're not there yet. It'll get there in God's timing. But you know what? The attitude is, you know what, honey? I'll hold down the fort. You do what you got to do. Honey, you go ahead and do it. I'll stay home with the kids. The bottom line is this. The judgment seat of Christ, attitude of heart. It all goes back to that book. You're both part alike. God looks at the one who went down and did it and said, well done, thou faithful servant. You did it. He looks at the one that didn't get the go but stayed home and did the stuff that they were couldn't. He says, you know what? You get the same thing because it wouldn't have been possible if you wouldn't have done your part. You're a team. That's why Adam got a help meet, not a help mate. God had a plan for Adam. All the animals got mates. Adam got a meet because they helped meet the mission of God because they were a team together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us and for your goodness to us. And thank you, Father, for this book. And I thank you for these people. I love them so much and they're so good. And Lord, uh, I just pray that you'll protect us. I pray that every heart 